Well, uh, happy Palm Sunday, everyone. I like that. No one knows what to say. <laughs> On Easter Sunday, you all know to say he is risen indeed, but today, I'm not sure what to say. Yeah, happy Palm Sunday. It's good to be with you. Um, welcome. My name is Trevor, and uh, if you are joining us uh, in person, you got um, a, hopefully when you came in, you got a palm branch. We'll look at that later. Uh, if you're joining us online, you didn't get one, but you'll see them. Uh, it's good to have you here, no matter where you're at, if you're here or if you're online. Today kicks off the beginning of Holy Week. Today marks the beginning of Jesus' final week in kind of part one of his earthly ministry. Uh, it, it is the beginning of Jesus headed towards the cross. And so as a church, we have been walking through the Gospel of John. And if you've been with us week in and week out, we have been spending time with Christ the day before he goes to the cross. But now we're backing up in time a little bit to go back to the beginning of the week when Christ comes into Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday. Just this coming Friday, Jesus will end up on a cross Everything will be quiet and dark on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, we will arise to the reality that the stone has been rolled away and that Christ, who was crucified, rules over death by reigning again, rising again, defeating our sin, offering us forgiveness, and the hope that we have always desperately needed is available to each and every one of us on Easter Sunday morning. That is just a week away. But before we get to Easter Sunday and before we get to the cross on Good Friday, we now begin our time together with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on what we call and has been traditionally called, been called Palm Sunday. Now sometimes in the church, Palm Sunday involves palm branches given to children and children waving them. But as you'll see in the text today, there are no children waving palm branches. Um, this is very much a symbol that is bigger than we think. It's a symbol that declares more than we think it does. And it's a symbol that I think will help us to rightly see our Lord and Savior, Jesus. If you're joining us here for the first time this morning, we hope that you would feel welcome. We hope that you would hear from God through the scripture. But more than anything, it is our hope that you would encounter Jesus, the resurrected Savior this morning, and that by encountering him, your life would be different. If you have a Bible this morning, would you join me in opening up to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. That's where we will spend our time. The story we're going to look at today, Christ's arrival into Jerusalem, is told in all four Gospels. And in Luke chapter 19 we hear the story of Jesus coming into the city. We're going to read from verses 28 all the way to 42. So if you're following along via digital or physical Bible, join me as we read through Luke chapter 19. The title of this text is Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. It starts in verse 28. If you've got it, say got it. Love it. Let's go. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent 
two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus enters into Jerusalem with a decisive action at the beginning. There's a big response that we'll get to. And finally, the last thing we'll look at this morning is Jesus on a colt in the middle of a parade with tears in his eyes. If you're taking notes this morning, here's how our journey will begin. We will look this morning first at the king's pronouncement. Then we will move into the king's proclaimers. And lastly, we'll finish with a reflection on the king's peace. That's three P words so that you can remember it later. The king's pronouncement, the king's proclaimers, and the king's peace. The text begins in verses 28 through 36 with the king's pronouncement. Jesus on his way into Jerusalem is not heading into Jerusalem just like any other person. It's a festive time in Jerusalem. The Passover is upon us. And Jerusalem is now seen as a city of pilgrimage where Jews from all over are coming into the city. In fact, at this time, there's going to be far more Jews than there are Romans. Now, for a bit of historical context, one thing you need to know that's crucially important is that as God's people gather into Jerusalem to celebrate, they gather in with both the celebration of the Passover and a recognition that they are not in charge. In their own city, they are subject to Rome, and Rome is an oppressive nation on the Jewish people. 
So God's people are gathering into a city where they are carrying the weight of oppression. And Jesus is showing up this week, but he's not showing up just like anybody else. He's showing up with a message he wants to send. He wants to make very clear at this moment, only a week away from his crucifixion, he wants everyone to know precisely who he is. He makes a pronouncement. 500 years before this particular moment, a prophet a long time ago named Zechariah prophesied about God's coming future king. Zechariah talked about a day where God would send his chosen king, the one that Israel had been waiting for. And, and in Zechariah, 500 years before the text we're looking at this morning, in chapter 9, verse 9, this is what Zechariah says. Zechariah says, rejoice greatly. So 500 years before there is a prophecy that is given. And God's people are told, look out, there's going to be a day when you're going to rejoice greatly. Daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 500 years before Jesus, Zechariah says there's going to be a day when the one that you need, the one you're hungry for, God's true king, the one who's going to come and he's going to bring liberation, he's going to bring salvation, he's going to come in righteousness, he's going to come in humility, that day is coming. See Zion, see Jerusalem, the day is coming. Look and discover your king riding on a donkey. 500 years later, Jesus, during Holy Week, goes and tells his disciples, go get a donkey. Now they've been with him for some time, and they know who he's claimed to be, but what he's about to do is going to be a very public declaration of his own identity. Go and get a donkey. Sometimes you'll be watching in a, a movie or you'll see a moment where, where someone flashes their badge, maybe as a police officer. They reveal some sort of, maybe Superman, right? You get a, a peek into his suit and you have this moment where you go, oh, I, I, I know who you are. Jesus is making it clear who he is. This getting of the donkey business is not just for show. He wants them to know that the prophecy in Zechariah is now coming true in him. He is claiming to be the king. Some of you have been in your Bible for a while, maybe been around the church for a while. You know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know that some people make that mistake in our world today, but the word Christ is the same word for Messiah, and that means anointed king. Jesus is the anointed king, and I want you to see that he wants you to know, he wants us to know, and the whole world to know that he truly is God's chosen king, the king of the whole world. He is not a guru, he is not just a teacher. Jesus did not come to be your personal assistant. 
He showed up in order to proclaim that he truly is the king of the world. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus did not come to make suggestions. He did not come to just get your input about what you think was going to be best. He came to say, I am the king, and if you come and follow me, and if you come and submit to me, and if you come and surrender to me, the life that you have always wanted, the life that you have been looking for, is found in and through my lordship. He came to be the king. Jesus makes this proclamation for, he makes it very clear. And he came for us to be his people. So he tells his disciples, go ahead. Find a donkey that has never been ridden. Untie it so that it can be used for me. And I love this little moment he says to them. He says, hey, just in case anybody says, why are you untying it? You just tell them like a Jedi mind trick. You just say, the Lord needs it. And, and that's exactly what happens. Hey, why are you untying it? They said, the Lord needs it. And therefore, it is brought to him. Is Jesus stealing the donkey? Certainly not. The owner of the donkey is happy to give this donkey to the Lord. Happy to make this happen. After all, it has always been his donkey. Because everything we have always is a gift from God. And ultimately belongs to him. I want to just drill into this for a moment. Jesus claims to be king. Jesus wants to be king in your life. He doesn't just want to come as the one who helps you. He wants to come as king, as the one who is in charge. And there's an owner in the story who has this donkey that's never been ridden. And here come these two, probably teenage boy disciples, saying, can we have this donkey? The Lord needs it. And this owner makes this decision to say, you know what, this, this gift of mine, this donkey, is, is, is for the Lord. As Christians, when we talk about our talents... We talk about what we're good at. We like to, the word we like to use is gifts, which is the right word to use. You're gifted. You're, if you're here this morning, I'm sure you're gifted. You're gifted in some unique way. But we say gifted not because you've manufactured it, but because it's been given to you by God. But here's what I want you to see. If God is king in your life, then your gifts are to be used for him. From the Bible's perspective, God has no needs. So when, when Jesus says, tell them the Lord needs it, it's not as though Jesus couldn't figure out a way if he didn't get it. In the Bible, we know that God is, the, the theological word is all-sufficient. God is all-sufficient. Therefore, God has no needs. Nevertheless, God invites us to, to participate in what it is he's doing. And so God invites you with the gifts he's given you to use them for him. That's what it means to see God as king. It means to say, God, the gifts that you've given me are not just for me, they're for you. 
Some of you are brilliant. You did very well in school. Academically, you were on point. Your mind is sharp. You're logical. Now, you could use that gift of, of your academic brilliance. You could use it for your career. You could use it for your, to bolster yourself up. You could. That's a way of using it. But it's a pretty flimsy, empty way of using it. Much better to see your gift as an opportunity to say, God, how can I serve you with my talents, my brain? My, my, how, how can I, does the church need more great Christian thinkers? You bet they do. To be a Christian is to be a part of the greatest intellectual tradition in the history of man. But we desperately need great thinkers to once again steward their great thinking for the glory of God. Do you ever wonder why it is you're good working with kids? Why you seem to have a way teaching them? Is it just because you decided one day, you know what, I'm going to be good with kids? Or is it because you discovered that you had a gift? Will you use that gift just to build your own family? Or will you use that gift to build up the family of God? I think of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. As a kid growing up, I watched Mr. Rogers, a Presbyterian minister who had a way with children. And what did he decide to do? He decided to use his gift for the glory of God. What does Jesus say? He says, tell them the Lord needs it. Some of you need to hear this morning that for God to be your king needs to come face to face with the fact that your gifts, God wants to say to you, I need it. I need that gift. I need it for my kingdom. What does it look like for you to use your gifts? Some of you are passionate about justice. When I think of Christians who are passionate about justice, smart legal minds who worked on policy and got stuff done, I think of people like William Wilberforce, who took his abilities, his passion, his giftedness as a great legal mind and used it in England towards the eradication of slavery. Do you know what he believed? He believed that he had his gift from God and he believed the Lord needs it. Not because the Lord needs it in the sense that God has needs, but because the Lord invites us to use our gifts to participate in what he's doing in the world. Brothers and sisters, what are you gifted at? And are you using your gifts for the glory of God? Are you using it for his kingdom? He is the king. He proclaimed he is the king. Is he your king? Or are you living in relationship to God as though he's in charge of some stuff, you're in charge of others? Are you living in relationship to God where you'll listen to him when you agree with him, but when you disagree, you get your way? Are you living in such a way as to say the gifts God has given to you are for you to build your own kingdom? I want you to see that your gifts are for him. He is the king. The Lord needs your gifts. And just before we move on to that second point, that cult had never been ridden before and was tied up. Now, I was going to say donkeys can't talk, but you read a little Old Testament and you might think differently about that statement. But if that cult could talk, what might that cult say knowing that he's going to be untied to be used by God? 
Some of you are tied up. You're tangled in knots of self-centeredness. And you're locked in. And what God wants to do in your life is untie you so that you can use your gifts that he's given you for him, our great king and God. So the king's pronouncement. Jesus makes it obvious that he is the king. So he finds himself on a colt. On a, on a donkey, and he's headed now down the Mount of Olives, and people can start to look around, and they know what's happening because they know their Bibles, and they know Zechariah. And so what we discover is that people start to celebrate. And they started picking up palm branches. We see palm branches, not in Luke, but in, in the Gospel of John, you see that they're grabbing these palm branches. This is a parade of sorts that begins to break out as Jesus enters. But it's not just a celebratory parade. It's almost like a political rally. You see, this palm branch, which you have in your hand, functioned in the life of God's people as a national symbol. It's sort of the American flag of Israel. If you read your Bible, you'll discover that when Deborah conducted her court meetings. She did so under the shade of palm branches. When Solomon decorated the interior of the temple in 1 Kings, he used palm branches. Jericho, the city that God's people took over, is known as the city of the palm trees. And after Israel got out of Egypt, God gave his people a great festival the Feast of Tabernacles, where in which God's people would celebrate by building these tabernacles out of palm branches. Palm branches function in the life of God's people as a symbol of their identity. And so people see Jesus on a donkey and they lay their cloaks down, ushering in the king, and they grab palm branches and they begin to wave the palm branches and they start to declare, here comes the king. They start to declare, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now the word Hosanna in the Bible means God save us. Now remember, just so we're clear, Rome is in charge of Jerusalem. And here come a bunch of Jewish people into the city who are feeling the weight of Roman oppression. And as they enter into the city, they, the Romans are outnumbered. And here at this high point off in the distance, the Mount of Olives as it comes down into the city, people can look off in a distance and some of them may be here some of them maybe see the palm branches. Maybe some people see a figure, Jesus, riding on this donkey. And they begin to see people waving Israel's national symbol, declaring, save us, save us, save us. Here comes our king. Here comes our king. Save us. Here comes our king. And this starts freaking people out. Rome is concerned about this moment because Rome thinks that this may lead to some sort of riot, some sort of insurrection. The Pharisees are also very nervous for the exact same reason. The last thing they want is massive bloodshed this week. last thing they want is a political rally that gets out of hand. And so the Pharisees turn to Jesus and they tell Jesus, Jesus, tell your disciples to be 
quiet. This is no time to get out of hand. We don't want a riot. We don't want a war to break out. We don't want the Roman hand to come down heavy on us. Be quiet. Enough with the celebration. Enough with the Jesus is king talk. Be quiet. And Jesus responds in verse 40 by telling them, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. If they don't cry out, the rocks will. Oh, make no mistake, Pharisees, this parade isn't going to be stopped. The question is not, is the parade going to happen? The question is, who's going to be a part of the parade? Is it going to be the proclaimers of Jesus as king, or is it going to be the rocks? Jesus is going to be ushered in by the rocks or by us. And I, for one, don't want to give up my ticket to a rock. In the game Rock, Paper, Scissors, right, we know that rock is very powerful. I don't want to get beaten by rock. I don't want to stand before God and say, God, I didn't celebrate you. I didn't point to you. I didn't proclaim you. I didn't say, look, there's the king. He's the king. He's the one we want. I didn't do that because I was afraid of those who might say, settle down, be quiet. Jesus says, you're going to give your ticket up to a rock. There are always going to be people who want us to be quiet about the proclamation that Jesus is king. Are there ways for us to proclaim that message in arrogance? Absolutely. Are there ways for us to proclaim that message in ways that are all about kind of puffing ourselves up and looking down on others? Absolutely. But make no mistake, our responsibility as people who believe that Jesus is the king is to with our mouths, with our lives, with how we live, with what we do, to be like John the Baptist, a giant arrow pointing to the reality that our world is in desperate need of peace, our world is desperate need of a king and that king is real he is alive he has conquered the, the he has conquered death itself and his name is Jesus let me ask you what does it look like to proclaim Christ in your life how do you respond to those who say be quiet when people look at your life, do they see that you're the kind of person who's living in such a way as to usher in the king? When the king arrives, when Jesus returns, does your life make sense? Or are you going to be one of those, one of these things is not like the other kind of people? We want to live our lives in such a way that when Jesus returns, people go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And we don't want to live our lives in the kind of way when Jesus returns, people go like, oh, really? You? Interesting. Wouldn't have thought that. 
No, we need to sing and celebrate. What are they singing about and celebrating? The miracles that they have seen. Some of you know the goodness of God, and it has been a long time since you have celebrated the work of God in your life. Some of us need to start to sing and celebrate once again because our God has been good to us. He's been kind to us. He's been faithful to us. He has been the strength when we have been weak. He has given us direction when we didn't know where to go. He has been our king. We need to celebrate. We need to sing out. Not just in church on Sunday, but enough to where the world says, settle down. What a, what a great, wouldn't it be great if the, if, the, if, the, if the reputation of our church was, man, those people, those people who are at Risen, man, they, they just keep pointing to Jesus as the king. They're, they're almost, it, it almost gets on our nerves how often they keep pointing to Jesus as the king. We've said it regularly, I'll keep saying it. In our city, everyone moves here to become famous. Our responsibility is not to pursue fame for ourselves, but to make Jesus the King famous. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you going to be a proclaimer? Will you find yourself as a part of the parade? Or does a rock have your spot? Lord, please do not, please do not use a rock when my mouth is a gift from you and can be used much more effectively by you. I don't want to miss out on participating in what God has because I'm afraid of those who would ask me to be quiet. So the king's pronouncement, Jesus says, I'm the king. The king's proclaimers, the crowd is going wild, proclaiming his miracles, joyfully celebrating that he is the king. Even in the face of those who would say, be quiet, they say, we will not be quiet. We will continue to praise the Lord. But lastly, I want to end by looking at the king's peace. Because this text ends with Jesus in tears. They were excited they wanted peace. And they knew how peace would come. Why are they waving palm branches? Why are they screaming out, save us? What do you think they meant? I hope you see that this is very clear. As they're waving these palm branches, proclaiming, save us, what they meant was, God, save us from Rome. Save us from our political enemies. They were under Roman oppression and they wanted their true king to arrive to replace Rome, to be enthroned so that they would be liberated from Roman oppression. If you would ask the people at the parade that day, where peace was going to be found, they would have said, oh, it's going to come from Jesus. He's on the donkey. He's the king. He's going to come in. You better look out, Rome. He's going to deal with Rome and set us free. They wanted Jesus to deliver them, and they felt like they knew exactly how 
they could find peace. God, if you just do this thing, then we will have peace. And I know what it is. It's dealing with my difficulties. They wanted Jesus to liberate them and deliver them. Jesus, if you're the king, if you really are the king, you will deal with my difficulties. You will deal with my enemies. You will deal with my oppressors. You will deal with my obstacles. That's what you'll handle. But Jesus cries. And why does he cry? Verse 41, he cries. What does he say in verse 41, 42? He cries because he says they don't know where peace was found. They didn't know. They couldn't see. They had an expectation about how they were going to get peace. But they're wrong. What does Jesus know? As he's riding on a donkey, as they're waving the palm branches, what does Jesus know? He knows that he did not come to deal with Rome. He knows that he did not come to deal with tyranny. He knows that he did not come to deal with, to give political liberation. He was coming to deal with their sin. He was coming to die for them. That's how on Sunday, Palm Sunday, they're celebrating, and in just a short week, they will be shouting, crucify him. Why? Because in just a week's change, they recognize, oh, he's not coming to do what I want him to do. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want you to hear me. Peace is not found in merely the removal of your pain. Peace is found in restoring you to the very presence of God. That's what he's come to do. It's not your oppression, it's your separation from God. It's not your physical problem, it's your spiritual one. Your biggest problem is always your spiritual one. Victor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, where in which he tries to articulate why it was that some people were able to endure the Holocaust and why others were not. And one of the things he writes in his book is he says that those who were able to endure, those who were able to make it through, they, they, they seem to have something in common. He said they seem to have a kind of hope that couldn't be taken away from them by the presence of physical torment and torture. That's what he said. He said, he said for many of them, if all they had was, was their physical life and their physical health and the, their comfort, if that's all they had, then when that was taken from them, everything was taken from them. But he said there were some who had a kind of joy and a kind of peace that no amount of difficulty could take from them. Friends, I want you to know that the promise of Jesus, that his kingship and his claim is that he comes to give you a peace and a joy and a hope that cannot be taken from you no matter what happens to you. And that's a stronger peace and a stronger hope than you'll find anywhere else.
We sometimes expect God to come and we pray prayers like, God, if you're king, you'll deal with the difficulty that I'm facing. But I hope that what you see this morning is that God wants to say back to you, I am the king and I've already dealt with the most important obstacle in your life, namely your sin. And so now, by faith in me, I will be with you in whatever storm you find yourself in. Now, this is hard for us because many of us today, we feel like we know what our problems are. But Jesus cries because we miss, we miss it. Jesus comes to accomplish what we cannot accomplish. The basic truth of Christian faith is that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That when they're waving palm branches, shouting out Hosanna, which means save us, save us, save us, they're proclaiming something that's true. Save us, God. Save us because we cannot save ourselves. And Jesus says, yes, you will be saved, but you won't be saved by dealing with your political enemy. You'll be saved by dealing with your sin. Jesus comes and he takes our sin upon himself. He will go to the cross on Friday. Every infraction, every transgression, every lie, every sin, everything we do wrong, all placed on Jesus on the cross. Every mistake we've made, paid for by him so that as he dies, he overcomes it. And in his resurrection, he offers us salvation. He offers us the very presence of God. He offers us forgiveness and new life forever with him. The thing you need most, he offers to you because he is the true king. I don't know if you're here this morning and you are, I hope as you're here this morning, you're aware of your need for God. I hope that you're aware of your need to be forgiven and set free. And I hope that you would know that Christ on the donkey, Christ on the cross, Christ resurrected is the one who came so that you might be forgiven and set free and made new. Look, if you get that, it changes everything. It changes everything. If you start to see all of your gifts is not for you, but for him, it changes everything. If you start to see that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but it's what he has done for you, it changes everything. If you start to see that your biggest problem is not the thing you think it is, but instead it's your separation from God, and because of Jesus, you can now have the presence of God nearer than your next breath, it changes everything. Let me ask you this morning, what does it look like to trust that Jesus is the king? Who knows you better, you or the king? Do you see this morning that if you have Christ, you have greater peace? Or are you still thinking that peace comes on your terms? The cross is just, just moments away. It's just on Friday we will look at the cross. The crowd will go from celebrating to turning. Jesus' friends will turn too. By the time we arrive at Friday night together, we will all see our own failures. But on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we will continue to encounter a king who wants to forgive again and again and again and again and again. You cannot out-sin God's forgiveness or grace. 
He takes all of it on himself. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never trusted him as your king, I pray that this morning, by the power of his spirit, he would convict you that you would see Jesus as your king. You would see your sin. You would see that he's paid for it. And you would trust in him as your Lord and your Savior. That you would give in to him this morning. That you would surrender to him. And I pray that if you're here this morning and you're already a Christian, you'd begin to see that your gifts aren't for you. They're for the king. That you'd hear him say to you this morning, the Lord needs it. That maybe this morning you would think about your own gifts and you'd wonder, what do I do with this thing I'm good at? And you'd hear God whisper in your ear, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. And that you would use it for him. That you would live as though he is your king. That you'd proclaim that he is your king. That you wouldn't let anybody shut you down or shout you out or tell you to be quiet because you're not going to give a rock your spot in the parade. And that you would know you would know that the peace you most need does not come by the removal of what you think it does. It comes by God dealing with your sin, and he has, and he's victorious, and he's here this morning, and he wants you to know that power as we head into the rest of the week. It is Palm Sunday. We are going to eat pancakes. Those peace pancakes, I hope, will remind us of the peace we have in and only in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray you know him today. I pray you have him as your king today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I am enamored by you this morning. Lord, I can't believe that you deal with all of my sin. Not just some of it, you deal with all of it. You, you pay for our sins in the past. You pay for our sins right now. You pay for our sins in the future. You deal with all of them. That There's nothing we can do to earn salvation, but it's a free gift you give us because of what Jesus has done. He is the one who has the right to be called king. He is truly king. We worship you, Jesus, as the king. Lord, give us great insight into our gifts that they might be used for your kingdom. Lord, give us great courage to proclaim that you are truly the king in the face of opposition. No, we will not be quiet. We will proclaim the goodness of who you are. And Lord, help us to know the peace that cannot be taken away from us this morning. Some of us desperately need to know the peace that cannot be taken away from us this morning. The peace that is not impacted by anything else. The peace we have in and through Jesus. So Lord, we thank you this morning and I pray for those who are here who do not know you. I pray that by your spirit, you would convict them of their sin. You would help them to see your beauty, that they would surrender and submit to you as Lord and Savior and therefore be transformed for both now and eternity. Lord, we pray that our lost world would come to know you, would come to see you as the king we need. The king is here. You don't come always in the way we expect you to but you come nonetheless, and we're thankful for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.